0: Hey everybody, I'm Maggie and I'm Amber <laughs> and this is Crime Country. Today we are in Iowa ooh, ooh. Ooh, ooh. Uh, Iowa is the 26th largest state and the 31st most populated. It's bordered by the Mississippi River on the east and the Missouri River and the Big Sioux River on the west and the Des Moines Des Moines <laughs> River makes up part of the southern border. So for an inland state it really seems to be surrounded by a lot of water. Yeah, that is a lot of rivers. Yeah, like on three sides, it's got rivers. Iowa consists mostly of rolling plains and cornfields. And if you visit Iowa, you could visit the Effigy Mounds National Monument in the Iowa River Valley, which looks like a gorgeous, lush river area with miles and miles of horse trails and just raw natural beauty. And from... The couple images I saw on Google Images, it looks freaking gorgeous. Like it's just thick, thick trees, and then mm. like they run right into the edges of this huge, beautiful river, and it's just like rolling curves of a river surrounded by beautiful trees. It looked very, very intense.
1: That sounds amazing. Yeah. I'm gonna have to Google it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, or if you visit Iowa, you could visit the Des Moines, the Des Moines the des moines (laughs) the capital city of iowa des moines (laughs) uh and see the Capitol building which has stunning architecture and then you could hit up the iowa state fairgrounds which apparently is popping all year round and then at the end of the day you could end the day at the botanical gardens there's a lot you could see if you go to des moines iowa yeah it
1: seems it seems pretty well rounded
0: yeah lots of options yeah Iowa is known for being one of the most rural places in the United States, apparently. Huh. Is what one thing I read said, but I don't know if that's true. But there is something for everybody there if you decide to visit. Some weird laws in Iowa include It's illegal for mustached men to kiss women in public. I feel like that was a law in another place, too. I think so, too. So apparently mustaches just were not proper at some <laughs> point in time. It's like, mm, you're dirty. Don't kiss women. That's funny. <laughs> it's also illegal for a kiss to last longer than five minutes. I'm um, Okay, that's fair. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's fair. Um, I think. One-armed piano players must perform for free. Why? I don't know. <laughs> Isn't that dumb? It's messed up. He only has one arm. He can't do that many jobs. Let him make money off of his piano playing. Come on. It's impressive. No kidding. (laughs) If I was one handed and I could play the
1: piano, you better believe people better pay me if I'm giving them a show.
0: You can play at the piano bar and make twice the tips of anybody else. Yeah, because you're probably way cooler. (laughs) I would be impressed if we went to the piano bar and one of the piano players only had one arm.
1: Oh, heck, yeah. I'd if be so good.
0: If I was... love the
1: piano bar so much. Oh, my God. It's my I love favorite. the piano bar. It's so much
0: fun. We have dueling pl- piano bars in downtown Salt Lake, and it's amazing. Yeah,
1: they had one of those in downtown San Antonio also called Howl at the Moon. <laughs> and it was so much fun. Um, funny story. When me and Aaron first moved to San Antonio, so we went to go visit, and then his friend and his girlfriend, they were like, Oh, we'll take you guys downtown, we'll show you a good time, whatever. We go to the river walk, we go to Howl at the Moon and we just had a little too much fun. (laughs) And like you know how Aaron gets when he gets going and then how I get when I get going. (laughs) And so we were just having a good old time and (laughs) um, Aaron got a drink called a a bucket of chum, which was a terrible idea. It was like a rum drink with like a bunch of stuff. It was a a terrible terrible idea. idea.
0: Just the name alone, Bucket of Chum? No, thank you.
1: Yeah, but leave it to Aaron to pick that (laughs) out. So he gets this bucket of chum and so by this time we're like all like we should not be drinking anymore we should definitely be done (laughs) and then we have this bucket of chum and we're not wasteful so we're like (laughs) chugging this stupid bucket of chum you're not wasteful and (laughs) And so we we go out on the dance floor because obviously that's where I was the majority of the night. And then Aaron finally decides, he's like, oh, dancing looks fun. I want to dance. And so Aaron tries to dance with me and freaking drops me on oh my the ground. God. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, like, lays me out, like, he tried to tip me back or something. And then he just, like, <laughs> dropped me right on the ground. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. So anyways. But long story short, not really short because I'm still going, but that wasn't even the moral of the story or the point of the story. So the point of the story is the next day we were leaving San Antonio to go back to Utah and we get, we're we walking around the airport and we both look like big bags of crap <laughs> and we're just like feeling like death and this guy comes up to us and he's like, were y'all at the hell of the moon last night? <laughs>
0: No, it wasn't and we're us. Like, oh, you have us my
1: mistaken. <laughs> we're like, how does that even happen? We're at some random bar in downtown San Antonio and then the next morning at the airport we happen to see the same guy that was there last night. That's and so we were just super embarrassed and we were like, uh
0: Yeah, that
1: was us. <laughs> <laughs> And then we were just walking away, like, the walk of shame. We were like, oh, God.
0: We were those buckets of chum. (laughs) Yeah, so
1: don't ever order a bucket of chum. It's not a smart idea. It sounds bad.
0: And also, I never order a drink with rum in it, so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, rum is one of his faves, so he often decides he wants to drink rum. I hate rum.
0: Anyways, other laws in Iowa... (laughs) <laughs> did both of the piano players at howling at the moon have both arms they did have both arms mm, no one armed they
1: piano player made a paycheck
0: <laughs> um, yeah so it's also a crime in iowa to use a dead person's handicapped parking sign or license plate which is pretty morbid i think it's a lot everywhere like i'm pretty sure anywhere you I go think... you can't do that yeah but i included this because my ex-boss used to do this uh oh. her.
1: Oh, how her. did I know that? When you just say my ex boss, like you've had a few ex bosses, and like, I Cruella. just immediately know that it was her. Yes, yeah.
0: she. Her husband had died a few years before I even started working for her, and she still had his window hang parking pass handicap, and she oh. would just lay it on her dashboard. And she'd carry around like gloves or something and she would just kind of place them on top of it to cover the expiration date so she could get good parking wherever she went
1: oh my gosh yeah she was a terrible
0: person Ugh. yeah so i included that one just because it reminded me of her and she was a <laughs> dick. Uh, yeah in cedar wrapper Rapids in Cedar sure Rapids, Rapids. <laughs> <laughs> in Cedar Rapids fortune tellers are not allowed to practice within city limits and Interesting. lastly in Fort Madison Iowa the fire department is required to practice firefighting for 15 minutes before the t- attending a fire
1: you practice before attending a fire <laughs> so like someone's house is burning down and they're like, hold on. Practice guys. 15 minutes. (laughs) You know the drill. Fifteen minute practice. I feel like that's a
0: weird, weird one. Yeah. Fort Madison, (laughs) Iowa. Hopefully your house doesn't burn Um, down, because 15 minutes is a long time for a fire.
1: Yeah, your house could be gone in 15 minutes. Yeah, or unsavable. Yeah.
0: Yep. So that's Iowa and Here we go. Okay, so today I, Maggie, am just going to be telling three stories to you. And Amber's here just to listen and give her feedback and laugh at my jokes and tell me her own because hers are always way funnier than mine. (laughs) And uh, she just moved across country this week and needs a break. So I'm just going to tell her some stories. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So for our listeners, how was your move? It was long and exhausting and took four trips, but now everything, we're done. Kind of,
0: mostly. Everything you own is in California now.
1: Yeah, everything we own is here, so at least there's that. Yeah, but I definitely am going to take forever with the organization and all the things because I want to paint every single room in this house um, a different color. So that's fun.
0: Yeah. Okay, so on to my first story. Two of my stories are more old-timey and then one of them is more recent. So I tried to do a little bit of everything. But maybe not everything because it's mostly (laughs) murder, I think. Well, that's what we're here for. (laughs) Okay, so my first story is about William Heilwagner. Wagner. I'm going to say Heilwagner. Um, so in September of 1881, door 1881. that's how old this case is. It's pretty fucking old. Wow, yeah. It's like 150 years
1: old. Aw, snap. That is. Is that maybe the oldest? No.
0: No, I don't think so. I think we've had some in the earlier 1800s.
1: Yeah, that's
0: true. I think so. I don't know be interesting to f- go back and see, but I'm not that dedicated. <laughs> it took a long time to re-research. I mean, I guess I could just look at all my old notes. Anyways, in September of 1881, Dora Heilwagner was found dead. She had been shot and killed on her farm outside of Davenport, Iowa. Suspicions quickly arose against Dora's father-in-law, William Heilwagner, and... Um, it's reported that William started talking about the death of Dora the next day before anyone had actually discovered her body. So people got a little fishy. Oh like,
1: hey. yeah. That's a skeptical Yeah, or not, not skeptical. That's um, suspicious. What word am I thinking of? Yes. suspicious. It was an S word. I'm like, mm, skeptical is not what I was thinking.
0: <laughs> that's, that's not skeptical. <laughs> yeah. Um, so people started getting suspicious of this guy pretty quick, and it was known that William had been on at, had been at the farm of Dora and her husband Otto the night of the murder, and William's 17-year-old daughter testified that he'd been drunk that night, and he'd been ranting and raving about Dora. Everyone knew that Uh-oh. he completely hated Dora. Like, he despised his daughter-in-law. Um, And that night, they had gotten into a fight over some loss of milk. Oh. I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know if they were milk farmer or, like, ranchers. What is it called when you have dairy cows?
1: I think a rancher's right. Well, it's a dairy farm, right? Dairy farmer.
0: Yeah. But do you farm milk? Interesting question. Someone will have to let us know if they know the answer to that, because... I think yeah. ranchers slaughter the animals, maybe? But farming means like plants. I don't know. Anyways, I don't know if that's what they did and that was like the loss of milk that they were arguing about, but apparently they'd gotten in a fight that night over the loss of some milk and he had been going around calling Dora the low lividest thing around.
1: Oh, the low lividest? Lividest.
0: Hmm. 18th century, 19th century. Nice. Insult. Is the 1800s the 19th century? (laughs) I have a lot of questions. I
1: don't know the answer to that.
0: Because the 20th century was in the 1900s. And we're in the 21st century now? Yeah. So the 19th century was the 1800s. Oh man, we were getting sidetracked on this episode. But apparently that was a huge insult in 1881. The low, lividest thing around. And so... He was quickly arrested and went to trial. So everybody was like, this guy fucking did it. He was there. He knew about it before anybody else even found out she was dead. He's guilty. He hated her. So he's arrested. He refused to cooperate with his own attorneys. So he had like some defense lawyers assigned to him or whatever. Um, But he would not cooperate. Like he wouldn't tell them anything. He wouldn't say what he knew or where he was or if he did it or if he didn't do it. He would say, he just kept saying, I'm innocent. And, but wouldn't cooperate with any of their questions about like, well, do you know what happened? Or like, where were you? Anything. He just was like, I'm innocent. Yeah. That's a red flag. Yeah. It's pretty weird. So even though he wasn't helping his defense attorneys at all, they tried to point out that there was no evidence linking him to the crime. No physical evidence. There wasn't a gun. There wasn't proof he was there. There was nothing of his belongings left at the scene. Nothing at all. It was a very circumstantial case, and the circumstances were this guy hated her and had been at the farm at some point that day. So, not a great case against him, and the defense attorneys did their best to try and point that out, but the jury was like, no, it was him. Guilty. So... After he was found guilty, he was sentenced to death and was sent to death row. And in 1881, they didn't fuck around on death row. You weren't there for 10 years. <laughs> you were there for like a month. <laughs> Dang. He was there for six months. But uh, still, that's insane. Yeah. So William Hattelwagner was sentenced to death. He's sitting on death, death row. And this local reporter, Charles Edward Russell... Heard about his case and thought it seemed odd that there was no more proof of what happened. And he was like, this seemed weird. I want to talk to the guy and see what happened. And this guy was the first, like, journalist. Like, he was the first reporter that... Did actual research and didn't just report, like, the gossip or whatever, you know? He, like, looked into stuff. He got facts. He wanted to find the truth. He ended up earning a Pulitzer Prize at one point, and he co-founded the NAACP. He was, like, a super important person in journalism in this time. And he just had this feeling that something was wrong with this case. And so he, he was curious, and he wanted to go talk to William. So he goes to the jail to interview William and try and figure out, like what happened, see if he could get any more details out of William on, like, why this wasn't making sense to him. But again, William just completely refused to cooperate. So, like, this is a sample of their conversation when he went to the jail to talk to William. So, the guy's name is Charles, the reporter. So Charles is like, where were you on the night your daughter-in-law was killed? And William says, who, me? (laughs) Who, me? Yeah. And, And Charles is like, Yes, you. Where were you? <laughs> who me? That was a. That was how people tried to get out of stuff in 1881. Not a lot has changed. Who me? I don't. know. What? <laughs> uh, what? Could who, it be who? then? Who? I, I, <laughs> who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? Um. Yeah. So, where were you the night your daughter-in-law was killed? Who me? Yes, you. Where were you? Oh, uh, I was in the house. <laughs> Well, did you see her get killed? Who, me?
1: No, right? I didn't see her get killed.
0: Did you hear her cry out? Who, me? Yes, you. (laughs) Did you hear her cry out? No, I didn't hear nothing. Did she go to bed as usual that night? Who, Annie? Oh, yes, I guess. She go to bed at night. (laughs) Did you hear her get up that night? Did you hear anybody come into the house? Did you hear any talking or fighting? Who, me?
1: I can't even with that guy. Who, me? Who, me? Yes. Who, Annie? <laughs> who, me?
0: Wait, who, who died? <laughs> I died? What? What? Here are things? What? Who? Me? <laughs> who, her? Who Who, the dead woman? <laughs> yes, you. No, I didn't hear nothing. Well, you knew that she went to bed that night, and she wasn't there the next morning, and she never came back. Didn't you think that was strange? Didn't I think what was strange? Oh, my goodness. That she was gone away in the night and never came back. Didn't you think that was strange? Who, me? Oh, my goodness. No, I didn't think nothing about it. I just go weed my onions.
1: Go weed my Oh, I get it. I get I, it. I just go weed my onions.
0: <laughs> and that's all he would give to this reporter who went to talk to him. So this reporter's like, Charles Russell, the reporter's like, Okay, this dude's fucking guilty, obviously. Yeah. Why else would he absolutely refuse to cooperate with someone who's trying to help him get freed, right? So yeah. Who, like, me? Who, me?
1: <laughs>
0: that's, a good, that's like a freaking three-year-old. Who, me? Yeah. He, yes. Who? Huh? What? Who, me? No, me. Ooh. What? Okay. <laughs> um. So, he did continue to claim he was innocent, but he wouldn't help any other way he was just like who
1: me no what
0: what, uh so he stayed on death row uh he even refused to have a minister come visit him in jail before he was put to death and on march 24th 1882 only six months after the murder he was hung his last words were gentlemen i am innocent of this crime and then he was hung I don't think so, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the spectators that came to watch him be hung were journalists. And absolutely no one believed he was innocent. They were like, okay, yeah. right, whatever. So he's hung. He's killed by the state or whatever. And then 10 years later, a note was found in a lodging house in Quincy, Illinois. The note confessed to the murder of Dora Wagner, And the writer of the note was Otto. Kyle Wagner, William's son and Dora's husband. What? William had known his son Otto committed this crime, and he went to his death to protect his son. Holy shit. Yeah. So, Otto couldn't handle the fact that he killed his wife and then his dad died for it. I don't know why he didn't say something before they hung his dad. He had six months to be like, shit, my bad guys. I did it. But, nope, he let his dad die for his murder of his wife. Then he wrote this note, left it in a lodging house, and went and jumped off a bridge and killed himself.
1: My goodness. Yeah. So in the So how long... How much time happened between there... between when his dad died and then he killed himself? Ten years. Oh, wow. He lived with himself for that long?
0: Yeah. And I don't... I don't... It was so old. It's not like there was status updates on like what he was doing in that time frame. But... Yeah. He didn't tell (laughs) anybody until... He decided to kill himself. And so he left this note in the note. It was a long letter he wrote about like what had happened. He said he found out that Dora had been. So she's called Dora, but I think she her nickname was Annie. Because he said Annie when he was talking about her, but her legal name was Dora. Um, so in the note, he said that she'd been unfaithful to him. And I think he wasn't even staying at the home at the time. So he went to her home slash their home in the middle of the night. Convinced her to come outside to talk to him and then just shot her outside. the Yikes. Room. Yeah. Because she cheated on him, possibly. So, possibly. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So for some reason, he let his father take the rap for it and lived with himself for 10 years before he just couldn't handle it anymore. And that is the really tragic story of the Wagners.
1: That's crazy, because then... Now there's just all three people dead and yeah. there couldn't just be nobody dead or like the rightful killer dead. Yeah. Or like
0: William didn't have to die, but he also like couldn't bring himself to turn on his son because he knew it meant his son would die. So he was just ultimately yeah. like trying to protect his son. So he's like, who, me? Huh, what? Huh, me? This is, I don't know. Like, what can I say? That's not going to obviously incriminate my son. So he's just like, yeah. I, I just want, I go weed my onions. <laughs> that's, that's really sad. And he also had a 17-year-old daughter, William did, so it's not like Otto was his only son. He had a 17-year-old daughter. I don't know if he had other kids, but his 17-year-old daughter testified against him because she's the one who told them at court that her dad was drunk the night of the murder and that he oh, came home and was, and was complaining mm-hmm. about Dora. So I don't know. I don't know. That's weird. and sad. So
1: that's just Super weird. A, a sad story from the 1800s I came upon. Well, I like it. It's yeah. interesting. And then, like, who, me? What? <laughs> yeah,
0: that part was too much. Like, <laughs> who, me? Huh? Oh, who, Annie? Who, me? Yeah, like, his yeah. answer to almost every question. Did you see her get killed? Who, me? Who, me? Who else would I be asking right now? We're sitting in jail. Yes, you. Right.
1: Well, it's either you or me that I'm talking about. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not asking myself
0: the question, so... I'm not questioning myself about this, weirdly enough. Yeah. Uh, so interesting. Uh, <laughs> but he, like, just wanted to protect his kid. I don't know. It's tragic. It's really tragic. But then he left his other kids without a dad, you know? So it's like, come on, man. Yeah.
1: I don't know. If I have kids, they better not fucking kill anybody and expect <laughs> me to take the rap.
0: Yeah, same. But thankfully, our legal system won't put you to death in, like, a month. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, plenty of time. But then again, they do put to death people who are innocent sometimes, so well, is it really much better? Yeah. <laughs> All that's right. true. So this next story is interesting, unlike that first Sorry. one.
1: <laughs> are you going to do the two old ones, or are you going to do the old one, the new one, and then another old one?
0: I'm going to do the two old ones and then the new one, because that's okay. the way I research them, and I think it flows nicely, so... Uh this one's really creepy.
1: I'm ready for it. I'm
0: excited. <laughs> okay. So this is about the Veliska Axe Murders.
1: Isn't there a Netflix show or something about this Veliska?
0: Maybe, I but know. I haven't heard of it. <laughs> so
1: then the the V Velisca word sounds familiar, but I don't think I know this story, so we're still good.
0: Well, hopefully, most of our listeners haven't seen that special.
1: I don't know if it's a real thing or if I just think it sounds familiar.
0: There's a movie that was made in 2016. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. I still don't think I've seen it, though. And another one in 2017. (laughs) I don't know. All right. On the morning of June 10th, 1912, neighbors of the Moore family were growing concerned. The Moores had four young children. Of their own and then two local girls had been staying the night at their house. The home was usually super alive and awake very early in the day and plenty of lights and noise coming from inside and on this morning it was pretty noticeable that no one was up and about in the house. So the neighbors were like, that's not normal. What's going on over there? So one of the neighbors telephoned the husband, Joe Moore's brother, Ross, And asked him to come check out the house. He was like, hey, it looks like nobody's home. And that's really weird for a Sunday morning. Will you come to see what's going on? So Ross comes over and he enters the house and immediately ran back out of the house and calling for the police. Oh, no. Yeah. So what happened in that home the night before is still a bit of a mystery. But when the marshal entered the home, he found both Joe And Sarah Moore dead along with all four of their children who ranged in age from 5 to 11 years old and both of the two little girls that had spent the night there that night that were 9 and 12 year old sisters. What a bad night for a sleepover!
1: Terrible night for a sleepover.
0: Yeah, so these little girls went to church with the family and spent the night because the day before they had had like this church performance that they all were helping in and then they came home and spent the night. So uh, uh Everyone in the home was dead, and everybody in the home had been brutally murdered, like really fucking terribly. Because it was with an axe, right? Yeah. So the marshal came, and he brought with him two doctors and uh, the Presbyterian minister that the family of the church, the family went to. And then when they came, they got there, they saw what was going on, they called for the coroner, a third doctor, to come examine the scene so the third doctor the coroner gets there and he's the one who tries to figure out exactly what happened the night before and uh like walk through the scene of the crime and try and piece together what exactly happened to each of these people in what order etc you know yeah which is weird it's the coroner not like a that is weird investigator but it's 1912 so
1: The coroner was a jack of all trades. They did all the things.
0: Yeah, he investigated. He examined blood splatter. He (laughs) really is the one that tried to piece together the scene of this crime. So the coroner comes into the house and starts examining the scene, trying to figure out what happened. From what he could tell, the murderer came in the house with the family's axe from their coal shed. The doors weren't locked because it's a tiny town and nobody locked their doors. And it seems like he took an oil lamp from the house again. So he didn't bring anything with him to commit this murder. What the crap? Yeah, which is pretty weird, but I guess electricity wasn't common. So you know people are going to have a lamp. And almost everyone had uh, an axe just sitting in their yard in their coal shed or whatever. So, yeah. I don't know. But so. He found an oil lamp in the home. He removed the chimney, which would chimney the light up and spread it out and make it light up more of the room. So he took the chimney out and then he bent the wick to make the flame as small as possible and then turned the lamp down so it was giving off the least amount of light possible. So he could still kind of see around the house but not wake anybody up with the light. And then he started with the adults. So He entered the home, he passed the first room that had the two neighbor girls sleeping in it, he went up the stairs, passed the bedroom with the four other kids in it, and then went into the third room and murdered the adults. Yikes! Yeah. So he passed all of the children on his way to start with the adults, and he stood over Joe and used the flat side of the axe instead of the sharp side. Oh. Because the sharp side sticks in stuff when you hit it, and you have to, like, wiggle it out. But the yeah. flat side just, like, smashes shit. So he raised it far above his head. It said that he raised it so high above his head that it scraped the ceiling with the sharp side before he oh. brought down one big blow to Joe's head, which probably killed him instantly. And then before yeah. Sarah even woke up or processed anything, she also received a blow to the head with the backside of the axe blade. So then Yikes. nobody screamed, nobody woke up, nobody freaked out. So the kids didn't wake up. They didn't have time to freak out. They all just freaking
1: yeah. just woke up and their lights were knocked out. And, they and maybe couldn't they didn't even... even wake up. Yeah, at all. probably like, maybe not. just
0: like they died in their sleep, hopefully. I mean, really. Hopefully, yeah. Oh. And it's hard to say whether or not they did die or suffer at all from Mm -hmm. the blow to the head. So he then goes to the kids' room and kills all four of the more children the same way. And there's no evidence that any of them woke up either. Like, they all just were laying in their bed. And then he went downstairs and killed the Stillinger sisters, Lena and Ina, who were 12 and 9, spending the night at the house. And it seems like oldina, Lena, um, the older of the two sisters, the 12-year-old, is the only person that may have woken up before her death because she wasn't just laying right in bed. So they think oh. maybe she heard something, but nonetheless, she was killed. Uh, so after all eight people in the home are dead, the killer wasn't done.
1: Does he... Uh, well, I guess we'll find out, but... Does this guy know these people? Like, why? I don't understand why you just walk into someone's house and just beat them all senseless and kill them all with an axe, right? And children, like, like uh, six children. Yeah, like if you really like, couldn't you just let them sleep? No one saw you. Six like, children. if you wanted to just kill someone, like kill one person and not yeah. eight.
0: If you have an issue with Joe or Sarah, just kill them. And don't kill the six kids between five and 12 years old. Come on. All eight of the people in the house were dead. But the killer was not done. So after he had murdered everybody with a swift blow to the head, he then brutally beat in all their faces again and again and again. After
1: they were dead?
0: Yeah. So he went back to the bedrooms of each of the people and just brutalized them till they were unrecognizable. Oh god. Yeah. After what a they were fucked. Uh and then he picked different pieces of clothing around the house and covered up all of their faces, which is weird. And also That's like, super weird. In more recent times we've discovered that like if a killer covers up the person that they murdered, it's probably that they knew them and don't want them like, yeah. looking at them. So, it does lead you to believe this killer knew them, right? Yeah. Um. So, he covers up all of them with different articles of clothing from around the house after he just brutalizes them after they're dead. And then he took a two-pound slab of uncooked bacon from the uh, icebox and he wrapped that in a towel And left it on the floor of the room in the downstairs where the neighbor girls were sleeping. And just left it there. Mm -hmm. Why? Right? Why? Uh, And the first time I typed uncooked bacon, I typed uncocked bacon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uncocked bacon? What the Uh, fuck is
0: uncocked bacon?
1: (laughs) Maybe he was putting the uncocked bacon down there. To lure in wild animals to eat the bodies.
0: But he wrapped it in a towel.
1: Yeah, I don't know about it then.
0: Yeah, it's maybe like he was going to bring it with him and forgot it?
1: <laughs> oh, I just killed all these people. But uh, uh, I think I want some bacon and eggs later. I'll well, steal maybe their bacon.
0: Oh shit, I forgot to go beat their faces in. I'll leave the bacon here and I'll remember to pick it <laughs> up after I come back down and then forgot oh, it, darn it. I don't Who, know. Who, me? yeah uh they also found a piece of a keychain, which I think keychains were probably a lot different in nineteen twelve. but they found a piece uh-huh. of a keychain that was not from the Moore's home at the scene. So it was probably the killers. The killer also nice. filled a bowl with water and probably used that to wash the bloods from his, his hands and kind of clean up after brutally murdering eight people. Uh. And he just kind of hung out in the house. He, he took different articles of clothing also, and he covered every piece of mirror or glass around the house. What? So he put, like, clothing in front of all the windows, he covered all of the mirrors, anything he could see a reflection in, he covered with random articles of clothing. Weird. Super weird. And then sometime before 5 a.m., he left the lamp at the top of the stairs, left the house, locked the door behind him, which wasn't even locked when he got there, and went on his way. Yikes. Creepy,
1: right? Yeah. I just don't understand and did like and why?
0: so many weird things like the bacon and covering all the mirrors and glass.
1: Like random details. Weird.
0: Yeah, super weird. So uh the next morning obviously uh Joe's brother Ross comes and he walks in and just sees the dead girls and blood everywhere and he leaves he calls for the marshal the marshal shows up with three people so there's four people showing up to begin with those two doctors he decided to bring and the uh, minister from the presbyterian church where the family went and then shortly after the coroner came who actually did some sort of investigation and Mm -hmm. tried to reconstruct the crime and after the coroner came out people were hearing something was going on uh and so people knew Gossip in a small town, I guess, but there was a crowd gathering outside of the home by the time he came out, and he what was the like, heck? Do not go in there, boys. He said, Don't go in there, boys. You'll regret it until the last day of your life. Oh. But humans are curious and most of the people did not listen to him.
1: And Of course they didn't. They're like, Oh, what's in there?
0: Yeah, I want to see eight dead people. Cause oh. why not? <laughs> So, and apparently in 1912, there was no, like, locking down a crime scene.
1: Yeah, so you're like, oh, let's preserve this evidence. Oh, just kidding. That rando just walked all over it. Yeah, I
0: mean, we already had five people show up with the marshal, and then we'll just let all the neighbors check it out. So (laughs) Sweet. Yeah. Story of this murder spread quickly in the surrounding area, and as many as a hundred curious people came and trampled through the home to see. What the crap? Yeah. So they touched everything. They left fingerprints on everything. They moved evidence. They took stuff. In one case, somebody even took a piece of Joe Moore's skull as a morbid keepsake. Yeah. To be like, I was at that murder. Look, I have a piece of his
1: skull. What is wrong with people? And even back then, like, I get that things weren't, as high tech and they didn't have maybe the protocols that they've got
0: today. They have, but like, what the hell? Fucking cameras. I don't know, like hire somebody to take a picture. Don't steal Seriously. a piece of a man's skull. Yeah. So oh. uh the crime scene was destroyed. And anyways, it was nineteen twelve. Police were pretty limited on what they could do. And everybody and their dog had come and contaminated the scene. So Yeah. It was real difficult to try and figure out who the fuck murdered all of these people.
1: So was the axe still there or did the guy take the axe with him? I believe the axe or was the still girl.
0: there. Yeah, the person. Um, yeah. I believe the axe was still there.
1: Oh, but people probably put their grubby little hands all over it. Yeah, and they probably like
0: were like, how did he swing it? Like, gross." <laughs> Picked it up and swung it, it around. Yeah, so... Uh A couple of not so great searches were organized, and they s- tried to search the nearby countryside to find a mysterious murderer that could be hiding in the hills or whatever, but nothing was found, no evidence was found. The murderer literally could have been anyone. Uh, he could have been a townsperson who had plenty of time to just get home and clean up and act like they'd just woken up before anybody even found the bodies. or the town had a train station. And so anyone could have just hopped on the morning train and been gone before anybody even knew the family was dead because it wasn't until like 8 a.m. when somebody found the bodies and it was 5 a.m. when they think the person left the house or before 5 a.m. So they tried to find who it was. They brought in bloodhounds to follow the scents. But again, there'd been a hundred fucking people in the house. So what scent is the bloodhound supposed to follow?
1: Right. The 112th
0: cent? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Everybody in town was just, like, afraid. They were gossiping. Everybody had their own, like, theory of what had happened. Everybody started locking their doors. And it's said that by sundown of that first day when the bodies were found, there was not a dog to be bought in Villisca at any price. So everybody bought dogs. (laughs) And... Started locking their doors.
1: Oh, to, to alert them if people were there?
0: Yeah. Good boys. Good, yeah. good boys keep you from getting murdered. <laughs> so, the murderer was never found. What? Yeah. I don't know who did this. Still to this day? No yeah, one knows? Not a clue. But there's a few possibilities of who might have done it and reasons why they might have done it. So, I'll tell you what they are and see what you think. Because I think... I I picked one that I think did it. (laughs) All right, so the first suspect that a lot of the townspeople thought it was was Frank Jones. Frank Jones was a local businessman and he was a state senator in Iowa and a prominent member of the local Methodist church. Joe Moore, the father of the family that was murdered, and his family were very strong Presbyterian believers. And so all the people that went to the Presbyterian church with Joe kind of think that Frank Jones the Methodist did it and so the town was kind of divided along religious lines so it was like presbyterians think it was Frank methodists are like no way Frank's innocent fuck off um that's probably exactly what they said i think um, Frank was never formally charged with anything to do with the murders but there was a grand jury investigation to, to try it and indict him to bring him to trial and there was an ongoing campaign in town from all of the Presbyterians that was trying to prove that he did it and ultimately it completely destroyed his political career and the people who believe he's guilty think that he used his political influence to squash the case against him and that's why that it never went to an actual trial and it only went to the grand jury and then was dropped so Why would Frank Jones have killed a family of six plus two additional girls? Well, Joe Moore and Frank Jones fucking hated each other. Like they had a known rivalry in town that everybody knew they despised each other. So Frank Jones sold farm equipment and he had his business selling farm equipment. He had a bunch of people working for him. And Joe Moore had worked for him as a salesman. Joe was super, super great. At his job, and he became the best salesman super quickly. But Frank was a super douchey boss, and he expected his employees to work from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., six days a week. Excuse me? Yeah.
1: There's yeah. no work life balance there. What the fudge? Yeah, no, thank
0: you. So. Yeah, you can fuck right off, pal. Yeah, but Joe worked for him for seven years. With that schedule? Yeah. He got Sundays yeah. off, and that was it. So, he worked for you Frank. Do you know how much of your life you would waste working that many hours? All of it. Like, it's not even worth it. But, like, I don't know if 1912 jobs are limited. You gotta do what you gotta do to support your four kids. But, I don't Well, know. goodness gracious. That's yeah. insane. So, Frank was a bad boss. And he also was, like, a state senator and just a wealthy man who took advantage of people, apparently. But, Ugh. um... Joe work. (laughs) Joe work.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Joe. That's all I heard.
0: (laughs) Bumped it. um, And poked it, actually. I'm getting really aminated with my aminated. I just said aminated. Aminated? I'm so aminated. I'm getting aminated. (laughs) Oh, God. Uh All right. <laughs> Amination aside, Joe worked for Frank from the year 1900 to 1907, but he quit and started his own farm equipment sales company Ooh. as a direct competitor against Frank. And since he had idea, I mean, maybe it might've ultimately led to his death, but, um, since he was the best salesman and he had such a good reputation doing the sales he took the entire John Deere business with him. So Holy cow. Frank couldn't sell John Deere tractor equipment anymore. And Joe took that business and started his own company. And now he was the person selling John Deere equipment in Villisca, Iowa.
1: Dang. Don't they make people sign non-competes for that reason
0: nowadays? <laughs> Probably. Um, <laughs> So this was a huge blow to Frank's business, obviously, and it started the hate between the two men. I think Joe probably already hated Frank. You have a shitty boss, you hate him pretty bad. And obviously he wanted to fuck him over, taking the John Deere account away.
1: See you later, pal. Good good luck.
0: Peace. I'm going to work eight hours a day, sucker.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to have work-life balance.
0: Yeah, so that is the big thing that caused a feud between them. But also, it's rumored that Joe had slept with Frank Jones's daughter-in-law, Donna.
1: Oh, at first I was, I thought, like, I was just assuming that you were going to say he had slept with his wife. <laughs> and then. no,
0: his daughter-in-law. But... Which, I guess his wife would probably be worse. Um, so Donna. But still. Yeah, you're making the whole Jones family look bad if you fuck the daughter-in-law. But um, Donna, was, <laughs> Donna was really pretty. She was known to be super pretty. There's actually a picture of her online, and she's really pretty. In that last old tiny one where I had the article that described her as, like, gorgeous, you know?
1: Um, oh, yeah.
0: She was slight but busty, or whatever it said. Um, yeah. And then I saw a picture well of Well in Yeah. No,
1: that's not the word. No. What word was it?
0: We can remember even when I was telling the story, but... Uh, I didn't see any articles describing this girl, but I saw a picture of her and she's actually really pretty. When I saw a picture of that girl on our last that ep- other episode, I was like, ooh, her? Ooh. <laughs> ooh. But I saw this girl and I was like, wow, she's really pretty. <laughs> so, it's rumored Joe was sleeping with Donna. Donna was married to Frank's son, and she was known to have many affairs, which is interesting and seems kind of gossipy but the reason that people knew she was having an affairs is because that she liked to arrange her hookups with these married men and stuff over the phone and back in the early 1900s all calls in Velisca had to go through an operator so there was an operator on the line listening to her talk to many men about meeting up with them to have sex even oh though God. she was married
1: <laughs> what kind of Like, that
0: would be the most interesting job. That's what I have here in my notes. I literally (laughs) was like, I want to be a 1900 phone operator. No kidding. You get all the details and
1: then you just like are in the know and you know everything. But then you probably have to like obviously keep
0: your mouth shut. I literally but, put that in my notes because I was like I, like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I would so want to hear every conversation that everyone was having in town.
1: Yeah, freaking nosy Rosie over here too.
0: What does that <laughs> say about us? What's wrong with us as people? Uh. Uh,
1: I don't know, but sign me up because... That would be, like, entertainment at its finest.
0: Yeah, I have here. Can you imagine how fun it would be to be an operator who gets to listen to everyone's phone calls?
1: Right? (laughs) Seriously. Like, I cannot imagine, especially if you're hearing phone calls like that. Yeah, like, when you get the
0: hot gossip and it's like, oh, my God, Frank Jones's daughter-in-law's fucking Joe Moore. Ooh. <laughs> and
1: like, and who who do you even get to talk to about it? Like, do everyone. you talk about it?
0: You tell everyone. You tell all the biddies <laughs> at church. You tell, you like whisper <laughs> nondiscreetly, like in the butcher shop when you're picking up your lamb fruit sunday dinner or something like, oh i can't it's so sad to hear about frank jones's daughter-in-law and the other lady's like oh what 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 did we hear about them hmm? and you're like i i i don't want to have a big mouth but i just thought i had heard that she was sleeping with joe moore this weekend mm. <laughs> <laughs> hey oh oh really <laughs> Oh my, that's a terrible rumor. I know, terrible, terrible. We shouldn't gossip. No, no, we shouldn't. (laughs) Yeah. I imagine that's exactly how it went. (laughs) Uh, But poor poor Sarah Moore. Her husband was a cheater. Anyways. So, Frank fucking hated Joe. Joe stole a bunch of his business, lost him a bunch of money, and fucked his daughter-in-law, which made his entire family look bad. They were mortal enemies. It was so bad that they would literally cross the street to avoid each other, which is a huge sign of hatred when you live in a tiny, tiny, small community where there's like yeah. one street, everybody walks down. So everyone knew they hated each other. It was super, super obvious. So everybody in both of their churches were like, it was fucking Frank that killed Joe. And then Frank's church, they were like, no way. It was probably somebody else because Joe was a sleaze bag." So town was pretty torn over whether or not Frank may have committed this um another thing about frank though is that he was 57 years old in 1912 which is pretty old in 1912 and a lot of people yeah yeah. so a lot of people didn't think he could physically swing an axe that hard that many times
1: yeah i mean especially if he wasn't like
0: physically fit like doing stuff I'm not sure. I'm not sure what kind of shape he was in. But that was one of the things I think was like people didn't think he'd be strong enough to do it.
1: Yeah, because life expectancy back then was definitely much um, Yeah, like he was elderly. Lower. (laughs) Yeah. But like if you're 57 today, you're in your prime.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. (laughs) You could swing an axe to kill eight people. No problem.
1: Uh, Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: But please don't.
1: (laughs) Yeah, let's not do that. I mean, it's like... Just go to one of those axe throwing like uh, things that they have now, the bars, not bars, axe throwing event things, but they serve alcohol. And I think that's crazy.
0: In Utah, they've really, really tried to fight letting them serve alcohol at those places because Utah's liquor laws and stuff. But I think it came down to like a, well, if they also have a pool table, they can be considered like a billiards bar plus axe throwing and then they can serve alcohol or something weird like that but yeah Utah really tried to fight the alcohol and axe throwing combination
1: yeah I mean we've done plenty of the axe throwing very intoxicated while camping oh my god I cut my leg so bad that one time (laughs) so I mean probably not um not ideal
0: but uh it's a good time (laughs) One time we all went camping, me and Spencer and Amber and Aaron and our dogs, for Memorial Day weekend. And one in the mornings, <laughs> Amber and I woke up and started the day with mimosas. Like, two bottles of champagne. Two it's bottles fine. of champagne. And then we cracked open a magnum bottle of wine, red wine. <laughs> and we were both done by early afternoon. But not before... We decided to join the boys in their axe throwing, and I cut my leg open a little bit.
1: <laughs> Terrible idea. Because you got yourself, like, right on the shin, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That was not ideal, but, uh... My, yeah, headache, the thing-
0: my headache that night was way worse than the pain in my shin.
1: <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I woke up that night in that tent, and I vomited my freaking brains out. <laughs>
0: was a bad idea but it was a lot of fun it was a terrible idea
1: do not start your morning with two bottles of champagne and and basically a mac yeah don't do that before noon and think that you're gonna survive because you will not you will feel like death for two days
0: straight. Before 8pm that same day, like, I literally was dying. I was like, I'm going to bed and my head will stop hurting eventually. Anyways, a lot of people didn't think Frank Jones could commit the murder, but he was super fucking rich, so, like, he probably hired somebody to commit the murder. Oh, yeah. Murder for hire, for sure. Yeah, so there was one detective that became, like, obsessed with this case and he was convinced that Frank Jones was involved. And that he hired somebody to commit the murders. And he even picked a person. He was like, I know who he hired to do this crime. The man he thought that did it was William Mansfield. And a couple years after the Moore family murder, William Mansfield was arrested for murdering his own family with an axe in Illinois. Oh. But when they went back, because this detective was like, it was him. He uses axes. He was totally in the area at the time. He did it. I know it. Frank Jones is guilty. But they went back and looked at it and William Mansfield was gainfully employed in Illinois at the time of the murders and he was on the clock hundreds of miles away when the murders happened. There's no way he committed the murders. This one detective was just like trying to pin it on him, basically. So, he's just a copycat. Uh, or it was just a super easy thing to find at the time because everybody had axes, but
1: yeah, that's true.
0: So it wasn't William Mansfield that committed it, but a bunch of the locals still think that Frank hired somebody to do it. Even the father of the two little girls that were sleeping there that night, he he's convinced. Well, he was convinced. I'm sure he's not around anymore. Uh, He was convinced Frank Jones was involved somehow for the rest of his life. He was like, Frank Jones fucking did it. But. Who knows? So the next suspect we have is Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. Why do they have so many names? Lynn
1: George Jacqueline Kelly.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to call him Lynn. But uh Lynn Kelly was an immigrant from England. He was a preacher and a known sexual deviant with well-recorded mm-hmm. mental problems. So, oh. Not great. Uh No.
1: He does not sound
0: great. So Lynn had been in Villisca the day of the murders. He freely admitted that he had left town that morning on the train um, before the bodies, or around the same time the bodies had been discovered. And um, But he said he didn't do the crime. He just was like, yeah, I was in town. I left that morning. Wasn't me. The thing that makes people question about him is that he was five foot two and 119 pounds. So he was just like a tiny, tiny little man, and people doubted that he would have the strength to commit the murders, but I mean, a 119 pound, 5 foot 2 man could still have muscle, you know? That's,
1: well, no, that's not smaller. That's taller than me, but weighs less than me, but
0: I feel like I could swing an axe quite a lot. Yeah, and like, there's plenty of dudes that are skinny, but just like, all muscle, you know? They're just like, What's, yeah, that's the word? S- felt? <laughs> uh but you you know what I mean? Like they're just like real skinny, but they still work out and stuff. I don't know. Doesn't seem like a reason to me that he wouldn't be able to do it. He was a tiny, tiny little man, but he probably still could have swung an axe. Um also he was yeah. le- he was left handed. And the coroner believed from the blood splatter that whoever swung the axe was left-handed. So huh. could have been him. He also was obsessed with sex. And he'd been caught peering into windows in Villisca just two days before the murder. So he was a creep. He was peeping on people in town two days before the murder, and he was left-handed. Could have been this creep. Um, it's also believed that Lynn had attended the Moore family's church that day. They had that children's day service that I was telling you about when the girl, that's why the girls slept over at their house, because they had been all been involved in this church program that day so it was the children's Day, mm-hmm. children's day church service um and sarah moore the mother and all of her kids along with those two other girls had organized the event and played prominent parts in whatever the show was at the church that day so they all were super involved in this program that happened and he was there he went and watched this performance or whatever and some people think that he spotted them at church and just like became obsessed because he was a little pervert and followed them home and then spied on them until they went to bed. And there was even a spot in the family's barn where he could have easily laid down on top of some hay and peep through a knothole and just watch the family until they fell asleep.
1: So he seems oh. pretty
0: fizzy. Fischy. So I'm not sure when he first came to the attention of anyone about this case, Uh, And it took a while for the case against him to get any traction. But in 1917, they called a grand jury uh, to listen to evidence about him as well to see if they wanted to take him to trial. And during that hearing in 1917, five years after the murder, the prosecutors, whoever were trying to bring him to trial, brought a letter forward that Lynn had written to a woman in 1914. They gave this this to the judge to examine it and use as evidence against him that he was a total creep. The judge read this note. So what happened was in 1914, Lynn had been living in South Dakota. And he would place ads in the local paper saying that he was looking for a woman stenographer to do confidential work. And that she must also be willing to pose as a model for the job. And so some girls responded and she asked him about additional information for the job. And he wrote her a letter back. And I have no idea what this letter says because the judge said it was so obscene, lewd, lascivious. What? Lascivious? Is that word? Lascivious <laughs> means of a person, manner, or gesture, feeling or revealing an overt and often offensive sexual desire. Okay anyways so the judge said that this note was so obscene, lewd, lascivious less, less and filthy as to be offensive to this honorable court and improper to spread upon the record thereof so the judge refused to let this re- this note be entered into the record on trial because it was just too lewd Um, so nobody knows what it said, but apparently it was fucking terrible. So this girl writes him and she's like, Oh, Hey, I'm interested in your job that you were put in the paper. And he writes her back this letter. And part of it said that, um, she'd have to be willing to type for him in the nude. And, uh, part of the stenographer job would be just typing in the nude modeling for him naked. And apparently the letter said lewd, horrible, filthy, offensive things. So, uh, they brought that against him as evidence that he was a creep. In this trial, um, other evidence that they brought forward said that he had sent bloody clothes to the laundry in a nearby t- nearby town right after the murders. And an elderly couple came forward, and they said that they saw him on the train leaving Veliska at 5:19 a.m. the morning the bodies were found. And they said this older couple that was on the train with him said that he told them that a murder had been committed in that town at 5 19 a.m but their bodies weren't discovered until 8 a.m mm. and it's also believed that lynn returned to Velisca a week after the murders and he posed as a scotland yard detective so he could get a tour of the murder house and see everything that happened there which seems pretty fishy as well so when he was arrested, yeah. yeah, like who wants to, apparently everyone wanted to go do that. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. So when he was arrested in 1917, he was repeatedly interrogated over and over again. And finally he signed a confession, but he later recanted that confession. They'd been just repeatedly interrogating him. Who knows what they were threatening and what he signed, you know, to just get out of it. So he signed a confession and he later recanted it. And then that older couple who said they talked to him on the train, they also changed their stories. So without his confession and with the older couple recanting, the grand jury would not proceed with letting him go to trial. So he was freed as well and never taken to trial about the murders. But he's also a possibility. And the third theory in this case is that there was an axe-wielding serial killer traveling the Midwest in the early 1900s. So, mm-hmm. there'd been a chain of bizarre axe murderers across several states in the Midwest. It started in around September of 1911. A family of six was killed in Colorado Springs with an axe. And then three people were killed with a pipe in Mammoth, Illinois, which doesn't fit the axe murder thing, but they tried to group it in with this axe murder serial killer theory. Yeah. Because it was in the same area, multiple people killed in the middle of the night, but they were hit with a pipe instead of with an axe. So, maybe. Then, five people were killed with an axe in Ellsworth, Kansas. Then, two more people were killed in Paola, Kansas. Uh, and that those two people were killed just two days before the Moors were killed. There was a few more similar axe murders spread out across the Midwest. And... um. Then in December of 1912, Mary Wilson and her daughter, jo- daughter Georgia Moore, were murdered in Columbia, Missouri. And in their murder, it was determined that Mary Wilson's son, Henry Lee Moore, was the one who committed the murder. He killed his mom and his sister with an axe and was arrested. One detective who worked that case, he worked for the Justice Department Department. The Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, which was the FBI before the FBI was the FBI, uh, believed that Henry Lee Moore had committed all of these murders across the Midwest, and then he came home and finished with his family. That doesn't really make sense. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like most serial killers don't come home. They might start at home and then move out, but they don't kill a bunch of other people and then come home. And the only real motive for him to kill his mom and sister was money, because if they died, he got everything. So why would he kill a bunch of strangers first if he just wanted to get the family property and money? So I don't think Henry Lee Moore was a serial killer. But so that one murder probably was not related to the rest that happened across the Midwest. There's a chance that none of the murders are related to each other. Every home in the Midwest at the time would have an easily accessible axe, probably just lying somewhere in the yard or the shed or the barn because everybody needed an axe. So most of the people were attacked in their sleep, which is a common thing between all these murders, but like also the easiest time to attack somebody. And uh, at eight of the ten crimes that they think this serial killer, quote unquote, serial killer may have committed, Eight of them, the weapon was abandoned at the crime. In at least seven of the murders, a railway line was nearby. In four of the murders, they covered the victims' faces. And in three of the murders, they washed up at the scene. Um, At the scene of five of the murders, the killer seemed to linger in the house after it happened. And then in three of the homes, a lamp had been lit with the chimney removed and the wick bent down to give as little light off as possible. I personally don't believe the serial killer throughout the theory. I think I don't I don't agree with the serial killer theory either. There's not enough stuff in common between all of them and the fact that they like covered victims faces makes me think of someone who knew them because that's been learned since 1912 that that's a thing killers do if they know the person they are likely to cover their face. Yeah. Uh, so I don't I don't believe the serial killer theory, but it is a possibility. What do you think? Who do you think killed the Moore family? I still think, even though they think, or everybody
1: thinks that Frank was too old, I think that he definitely had something to do with it. I think it
0: could be pretty likely, especially with him covering the faces, but I don't know how he would find someone willing to kill six children. So, he might have done yeah. it himself. I mean, 57 really not that old. Maybe he was really in shape in 1912.
1: Maybe he was. And... If they were all sleeping, that makes it that much easier. So, like, he doesn't have to fight people off. He literally just has to go in there, whack. Go in there, whack. Yeah. And that's it.
0: Yeah. I think it was either Frank or Lynn. I think it could have been Lynn because he just was a lunatic. Like, he was a known sexual deviant. He harassed women. He spied on people. He was in town. He might have known about the murders before the bodies were found. And maybe he did just see these people at this random church performance become obsessed and start just, like, peeping on them through the barn. And then after they were asleep, maybe he, like, was like, oh, I'm going to go peep more closely. And then he went inside and he was, like, watching them sleep and then just, like, lost his shit and decided to kill everybody or something.
1: I mean, I feel like it's logical. But didn't – because that was the one where he told the older couple – About the murder before it happened, right? Yes. But then they came back and said, no, just kidding. He didn't say that.
0: They changed their story. I don't know what they changed their story to, but they changed it. So he admitted he was in town. He admitted he left that morning. This old couple may or may not have seen him on the train that morning. He was caught in that town peeping on someone else two days before the murder. I mean, it's a real good possibility but who kills an entire family and then never gets caught murdering someone else
1: after. Right. I don't know. I don't know. It's a mystery. So. And he wouldn't have known any of them personally. So no need to cover their faces.
0: Yeah. But maybe he like came to his senses after and started feeling bad or something. And he was like, yeah. And so then Especially he was like, with the kids. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. No one knows. So, one last thing about the Moore family murders before I move on to my third story. The house where they were murdered still stands. What? Yeah. So, it's a common tourist attraction. You can do tours of it. And you can even do overnight tours where you stay the night and do like ghost hunting or whatever you want. You can spend the night in this house where eight people were murdered with an axe and the killer was never found. What? We should go. It's in Iowa. It's $428 for one to six people to spend the night there and then $75 for each additional person. So not too bad. If That's you're not sp- terrible. Splitting it. Between six people. Um, It sounds fucking terrifying though. Like it still doesn't have electricity or running water. So there's a barn outside with like electricity and a toilet and running water. So if you need to go, you can just go out back and go into the barn. But the house itself where you would be sleeping doesn't have anything. And you have to bring your own like sleeping bags and stuff. Because you just sleep on the floors in this old 1912 murder house.
1: That's pretty creepy. I don't know if I could sleep there, but I definitely want to go there.
0: They do daytime tours too, but the maybe I'll just do
1: the daytime because I'm too scared.
0: I I don't think any sleeping would happen. That's for sure. Yeah,
1: I I would not sleep. I would just maybe like just be sitting there all one eye open the whole night.
0: Yeah, no way. I cannot sleep in the house. I'm gonna go sleep in the car. See you guys in the morning.
1: Right. I'm like, um, I'll be in the barn by the by the electricity in the bathroom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've seen so so fucking ghosts in that house for sure.
1: Yeah, yikes. Maybe I don't want to go there. It sounds cool, but that's scary.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I'm brave enough. My mom would jump on the opportunity.
1: Oh, yeah, she would be all about it.
0: Yeah, so I thought that was kind of crazy. You can google it. It's like the v- the Lisca Ask's Murders. And that'll pull up the website where you can like book your tours in advance and stuff and check out the story and everything there. But it's pretty interesting. There's also pictures of the victims and stuff on Google. If you want to see like the two little girls or the suspects that might have done it, stuff like that. So it's pretty interesting. If you want to learn more, type it in your Google box. <laughs> yeah,
1: Google, man. Okay, I can't believe that there's never a killer confirmed.
0: Yeah, and there probably was a ton of evidence left behind for like modern days. Yeah, in 1912 they couldn't do DNA; they didn't have a database for fingerprints. They did still fingerprint people back then, but they would have to just go through. The fingerprints they had on file, Eyeball it. Yeah, one by one and see if they think they matched up. And when they arrested people and fingerprinted them, they only did their right hand, I think. So if they had like a fingerprint of a crime that was left-handed, it wouldn't even match anyways. So uh, we've come a long way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I feel like, I don't know if I heard that fact from one of our earlier episodes about just the right hand. Or if I heard it on another podcast, me neither. Because I, I feel like I've heard that before, but I don't remember. And I don't don't recall
0: where. I feel like it was a long time before they started fingerprinting both hands, because they just kind of like were like, "No, we have the right hand; it's fine. Most people are right-handed." In this case, the guy was left-handed, so yeah. And then they had a million people come in the house and touch everything, so uh, they destroyed all the evidence, anyways. Yeah. So it's just sad they all died in their sleep. Yeah, but,
1: I mean, I guess I'd rather die in my sleep than, like, be awake and know that I'm going to get brutally beaten with an axe.
0: Yeah, I just don't want to be (laughs) axe-murdered.
1: I I just don't want to be murdered at Uh, all. uh,
0: Yeah,
1: so. But I just don't want to die either. But I don't want to live forever
0: either. I'm very conflicted. Yeah, I don't want to suffer, I guess. I don't want to die too young. I want to live a good life, full life.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Thingsies.
0: That's deep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Moving on. Third story. This story takes place in two thousand one, and it's the story of Tracy Richter. So this one probably is more well known than the other ones I told. It's been on Dateline, I think, if not Dateline Forty Eight Hours or something like that. So some people maybe have heard this one. On December thirteenth, two thousand one police received a panicked call from a 13-year-old boy. He told the dispatcher that someone had broken into his home and shots had been fired and he didn't know what was going on and they needed to send someone immediately. When police arrived at the home, they found Tracy Richter huddled on the floor in her kitchen with her three children and a man dead on the floor of her master bedroom. Tracy was startled. She told the police that she had been attacked um she had been giving her baby a bath um she had three kids so she had a 22 month old toddler and then a 13 year old son or 11 year old son and another kid that was in between those two ages i'm not sure the middle kid's age but he was a little older than the toddler at least So she's giving the toddler a bath, and her two other kids are watching a movie in one of their bedrooms. And she hears steps coming up the stairs. She thought it was her husband Michael, who'd been uh, away doing work or something, but he should be coming home soon, so she figured it was him uh, getting home. So she turns around and looks, but she sees two men coming up the stairs running towards her. She grabs the baby out of the bathtub, she runs to the boys' room where they're watching movies, and she hands the baby to her 11-year-old son and she's like, lock the door, hide. And then she turns around to run to her own bedroom where she has a gun safe. But by the time she handed the baby to the boys, shut the door and turned around, the two men were on her. They were on top of her. They grabbed some pantyhose that she had hanging off of a banister of her stairs and they started strangling her with it and they strangled her until she lost consciousness. So, She has no idea how long she passed out for. She came to and the two men were banging on the kid's door, trying to break it open to get to the boys that were hiding inside. So she gets up and she starts running towards her bedroom. She's like, I need to get to my gun. And the men notice when she gets up, they thought she was still out or dead. And so they start following her instead of trying to break down the door. They want to stop her from doing whatever she's trying to do. So, She gets in her room. She crawls between, on the side of the far side of the bed, between the wall and the bed, and makes it to the gun safe. She gets it open. She pulls out a gun. She shoots over her shoulder. One of the men falls. The other man flees. He runs away. Uh, Her eleven-year-old son called for police. I don't know if he had a phone in his room where he called after this point. Not sure the timing of the phone call to police. But the son's like, "Someone's attacking my mom. There's gunshots. Hurry up!" And so. The police show up. They find Tracy just shaking, huddling with her poor kids and a man dead in her bedroom and no other man to be found. So they take her in an ambulance to the hospital. She's in shock. She's freaking out because she had just been attacked all that. And she also still needs to give her statement about what happened. And her 11 year old son, Bert also gave a statement to police. He told police that he heard footsteps on the stairs He heard arguing, he heard the banging on his door after his mom had already handed him the baby and stuff and he had heard Dustin Weedy's voice and Tracy told police that she didn't even recognize either of the men that were attacking her until after she shot the one and was leaving her room to get her kids and then she realized it was Dustin Weedy. So Dustin Weedy was a 20-year-old guy who lived in his parents' basement nearby. He was described as like a really nerdy, awkward kid. He never could really get his words out the right way. Um, Could never say the right thing. People were uncomfortable around him. He was just off, but he was super timid. He didn't have many friends. He just kind of did his own thing, struggled to be social in society. But Tracy's husband, Michael, had kind of taken Dustin under his wing He'd given him a part-time job at his company. He would take him out fishing with his own kids. He'd take him to the batting cages when they'd go. He, he really just like liked this 20-year-old awkward kid, wanted to be a good influence to him. So Michael was really trying to befriend this kid, give him a better shot at life. Um, but why would this 20-year-old kid break into his friend Michael's house and try and murder his wife and children? Cops were confused. To say the least.
1: Yeah, no kidding.
0: Yeah. And who was the second intruder? Like, who was the person that was with him? Right. Breaking into this house. Um, Police had a ton of questions and they were searching for answers. So they had questioned Dustin's mom and they were asking her, like, hey, why would he attra- attack Tracy? Do you know, like, what, why he would ever do this? And she was like, Dustin had, has his own issues. But violence is not one of them. He is not a violent person. And the police were like, well, who who's he been hanging out with? Who's the second person that broke into this house with him? And she was like, he doesn't have friends. Nobody. Like, that doesn't make any sense. He would not do that. Like, literally, there's no one he would be doing this with. It's it, He didn't do this. I don't know what you're talking about. And they're like, well, he's dead in this woman's home. <laughs> um, right. So... They also questioned Dustin's sister and his sister told police that she had received a call at home earlier that day from Tracy. And it was asking her to let Dustin know that she had some jobs around the house for him. And if he would give her a call back, she would get together with him about what those jobs were and when he could come over that night. So that's a little weird. Um, As police are investigating everything, they notice that there's no sign of forced entry on the house none of the doors were broken down nothing like that so they were either let in or the door was unlocked but nobody broke down any doors nobody broke a window nobody broke their way into this home they also found dustin's car nearby and on his passenger seat they found this spiral notebook that was hot pink and inside the notebook there was entries from dustin that were kind of like journal entries He had terrible handwriting. It was very obviously written by him. But the most recent note that was written didn't make any sense. So his most recent, like, journal entry in this notebook said he had been contacted by a stranger named John Pittman. And John asked him to harass and then kill Tracy. And John Pittman was Tracy's first husband. So... According to this notebook, this random man Dustin never met named John Pittman contacted him and was like, hey, I need you to kill Tracy. And how John would know that Dustin even knew Tracy, who knows. But uh, Tracy and John had been going through a very long drawn out custody battle for their son Bert, the 11 year old. And so uh, according to this notebook, John wanted to get Tracy out of the picture so he could just have full custody of his son. Cops are reading this, and they're like, "That doesn't make any sense. This is raising some red flags." There's no way Dustin had come into contact with Tracy's ex-husband John, and this weird, convoluted plan to kill Tracy just seems completely out of the realm of something in reality. So, police start to suspect that the notebook was fa- like faked. It had somehow been planted to make John look bad. Uh, But it was done in Dustin's handwriting. So whoever did it convinced Dustin to write this note about John, even though there's no way in hell he knew John Pittman. So please start thinking maybe Tracy somehow convinced Dustin to write this note to make her ex John look like a crazy person so she could get custody of their kid. Or maybe Tracy's husband, Michael, was really trying to have Tracy killed but he was trying to frame it on John and make it look like John's the one who was trying to have Tracy killed. Mm. Please are like, something doesn't add up. Dustin did not do this on his own, but we, we're we not sure who, who did it. So right. they have this pink notebook, but they decide to keep it a secret. They don't release it to the public at all. They're like, we're going to keep this notebook in our back pocket while we do the rest of the investigation. If anybody brings up the notebook to us, we know they know about its existence and that's a good hint. So, they don't tell anybody about the notebook and then um, the news gets out about the shooting and all the papers are printing articles about Tracy, who's just a hero mom who saved her three kids. She shot a home intruder and she's just an absolute warrior princess. Everybody loves her. Papers are obsessed. Warrior princess. (laughs) Yeah, But There's no actual signs that the home was broken into. And there's no sign of this supposed second intruder that she says attacked her. So police are questioning her. They're questioning her husband, Michael, but they're not getting any answers. And after a year of investigation, the case just goes stale. They're not getting any new information. They don't know what happened and they literally just can't do anything else. But Dustin's mom, Mona, was like, what the fuck. My son is not a murderer. This isn't right. He shouldn't be dead. And everybody is writing about him like he's some crazy attacker who broke into this house and tried to kill his family at four. I'm not okay with that. So in 2003, Mona files a wrongful death lawsuit against Tracy. She wanted to clear her son's name and prove that he that Tracy was lying. So during the deposition for the wrongful death lawsuit, uh tracy stands by her story of what happened that night but before the suit goes to trial uh mona dustin's mom's lawyer convinces her to drop the charges he says this is going to cost you more money than it's worth and i i don't think we're gonna win we just don't have enough sorry you should drop it and so she drops it and basically the case is just cold at this point so the following year after that, in April of 2004, three years after the murder, Michael files for a divorce from Tracy. And Tracy does her best to make this like a super difficult divorce. She's like, I'm going to drag this out for as long as possible and you are not getting custody of my kids. So their divorce started in 2004 and it wasn't finalized until 2007.
1: Holy cow, three
0: whole years? Yeah, she dragged it out. She was not making it easy for anyone. And then she moves to Nebraska with the kids. So Michael, who she, they met uh, on online somehow, and he would, lived in Australia when they met. So she flew to Australia and met him, and then they got married, and he moved here to Iowa for her. And now they're divorced. She takes the kids and moves to Nebraska to try and keep him from being able to see the kids. But he works from home, and he's like, fuck you, I'm gonna be my, near my kids. So he moves to Nebraska too. And at this point, just like with her first husband, This custody dispute gets nasty. So as soon as she moves to Nebraska, she or as soon as Michael moves to Nebraska, Tracy finds out where he's living and she starts harassing him. She starts harassing his landlord, threatening both of them. She's just being insane. In 2008, a new agent is assigned to the police department in Iowa. And he takes another look at this case about... the the intruder that was murdered by the woman he was trying to murder. And so this new agent calls up Tracy and he asks her about what happened that night. And she's more than happy to talk to him. She's like, yeah, he broke in. He attacked me. There was two men. They tried to strangle me. I lost consciousness, blah, 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 blah. And then she mentions that, uh, somebody had said something about this mystery notebook that was never found, but Uh, she heard about it and it definitely sounds like somebody hired Dustin to kill her. And the police are like, we've never told anybody about that notebook. You're the only person that's brought it up to us. You're the one who knew about this fucking notebook. Oh, whoopsie. Yeah. So (laughs) she's like, uh, and they're like, oh, what about this notebook? Because they don't want to let on to her that they're like super suspicious of her. And she's like, oh, I only heard about it because Michael used to talk in his sleep. A lot, and he mentioned this pink notebook in his sleep. And the detective's like, Okay, so Michael said in his sleep that he had Dustin write in a pink notebook, and she's like, mm hmm. And while he was (laughs) sleeping, I would ask him questions and he would answer them. So that's how I know the notebook was pink, I know what was written in it. Michael made Dustin write in this pink notebook and try and frame john or jim i can't remember his name right now for the murder and michael told me in his sleep and the detective was like fuck write the fuck off that's ridiculous
1: uh basically yeah but they don't say that to her
0: they're like okay we'll look into that thank you and then she went home and wrote an email to one of the detectives saying like hey this is all the knowledge i have about this notebook and one of the lines that she wrote in the email to the detective is almost word for word what was written in Dustin's notebook. So it's like, obviously you wrote the fucking, you told Dustin what to write in his fucking notebook. Yeah, exactly. So police start to believe that Tracy somehow convinced Dustin to write these things in his notebook. And originally she was trying to pin it all on her first husband so she could get custody of her oldest son. But now she's trying to pin it on her second husband to get custody of her two younger sons. And it's not working. (laughs) So the police are still working on this, but it's 2009 at this point. It's been eight years since the murder and Michael and Tracy are about to go to trial um, for custody and stuff. So Tracy tried to file for a restraining order against Michael to make her case better and why she should have the kids. And the police were like, we can't just give you a restraining order without any actual evidence that he's done something to you. And so she was like, oh, right, right, right. So she calls the police a couple days later and she's like, oh my God, my ex-husband broke into my car and put a picture of the dead body of the man who tried to attack me eight years ago in my car so I would find it because he's taunting me and I think he's threatening my life. And so police call her down to the station to talk to her, and she thinks she's going in to talk to them about getting this restraining order. But in reality, they sit her down and they're like, "You're dumb. We know you put the picture there. Michael's innocent." And she's like, "Ah, "Excuse you, fuck off!" And so she leaves all pissed off. (laughs) But they don't tell her that. Excuse you, fuck off. (laughs) But they don't tell her that they think she committed the murder on purpose. They just are like, "We know you put the picture there. You're not getting your restraining order. Bye." Um. And then the next day, this dumb bitch writes a letter to one of the other police agents saying that she thinks Michael is a danger and he's probably a danger to those police officers' children and he's probably going to murder their children. And she even fantasizes that he does sometimes. So now she's basically threatening cops' children to try and get a restraining order against her ex-husband. So police are like... Okay, she might actually be a danger to our families. This bitch is crazy. We need to put her behind bars. So now yeah, that she's nuts. Fully convinced that she planned the murder of Dustin Weedy. So in March of 2011. This is all taking forever. This is 10 years after the incident and police are re-interviewing everyone that knew her at the time and one of the women that they interview is like, "Yeah, she told me about that pink notebook days after she shot the guy." And police are like, what? And she's like, yeah, I thought that was like known things. That's why I didn't tell the cops about it. But yeah, she told me about that notebook. She told me what was written in it. And cops are like, okay, that's enough. We're arresting her for murder. So in 2011, she finally gets arrested for murder. In court, prosecutors tell the court that they believe that Tracy was trying to frame her first husband, John. She wanted to make make it look like John hired Dustin to attack her. Somehow she convinced this poor kid, Dustin, to help her out. She probably told Dustin that John was abusive to her and Bert, her son, and that she just needed him to write this in his notebook and make it look like someone tried to attack her and that way she could frame it all on John and she, Bert would never have to be around John again. Something like that. I feel like she probably played the like, victim card to this poor kid that just wanted people to like him. He was gullible, he was naïve, he didn't have any friends, so he fell for it. Um, and then I think he even did do like a fake attack on her to try and make it look like she was attacked. But he didn't know the rest of her plan was to kill him, and then she did. And another thing that I didn't tell you before that seems really fucking fishy to me is that she shot him nine times. She, nine times. She fired at him 11 times with two different guns and hit him nine of the 11 times. She said she sh- She was on the ground shooting over her shoulder, not even looking where she was shooting, with two separate guns. And she hit her target nine times. Are you fucking kidding me? No. Two different guns. Yeah. So that seems super fishy as hell to me. Uh, her defense team argued that Dustin was mentally unstable, somebody had tricked him into writing in his notebook, but that person was Michael, not Tracy. Prosecutors pointed out that Tracy had a long history of making false allegations against people, mostly her ex-husbands, trying to get sole custody of her children, and this is just an, was another attempt, an extreme attempt to do that. So even like when she was trying to get custody of her first son in her first divorce, she told the courts that her first husband had molested her son and those charges what were all dropped
1: fuck? because
0: they weren't true. So, she, and then another time she pulled a gun on her first husband and fired at him. She missed, but she was arrested for negligent discharge of a firearm. This bitch is crazy. Yeah, so,
1: she's freaking nuts.
0: Yeah. So... That's the trial, basically. It goes to the jury, and they find her guilty of first-degree murder. She's sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, but her mom and her oldest son, Bert, are convinced to this day that she is innocent. What? Yeah, like... To this day, they have websites up saying, like, free Tracy and all this crazy shit. They went on Dateline acting like they were victims and their poor mom was attacked and she's been framed and all this bullshit. And it's like, dude, you look ridiculous. She's very obviously guilty.
1: Yeah, she's guilty AF.
0: Yeah. So after she was found guilty, but before she had her sentencing hearing to, like, see if she got life in prison... She had received a letter from an inmate in prison in Wisconsin named James Landa. James Landa was in prison for sexually assaulting a 12-year-old girl. And he had seen a newspaper article about her story that another inmate was reading. And he just became super interested in it. So he wrote her a letter. So she writes him a letter back as soon as she gets his letter. And it's worded very, very carefully. But she's very obviously trying to get him to have someone falsely testify that they were the second intruder and that she had nothing to do with it. But she doesn't come right out and say it. So, like, it's pretty fishy. But yeah, her letter that she wrote him, she sent him a picture of her 12 and 13 year old kids. She sent a pedophile in prison pictures of her children
1: No, thank you.
0: Yeah, she's a fucking lunatic who obviously doesn't care about her kids.
1: No, she doesn't give two shits about her kids at all.
0: Yeah, so the police had photocopied the letter that she wrote and the picture that she sent before... So she gave it to her mom to mail when her mom visited her one time. So they photocopied it before her mom left the prison with it. And then her mom mailed it to a pedophile in prison. So also her mom... Uh sent pictures of her grandkids to a pedophile. But that's a whole other story. What the crap? In the letter that she wrote to him, she included all of the information about her ex-husband. She included a description of him, his social security number, his address, his date of birth, and then super detailed descriptions about the crime so somebody could give false testimony. And then she even put in the letter um, the statute of liver limitations on burglary and home invasion has run up. So if somebody came forward now as the second intruder, they wouldn't even have to serve any time because the statute of limitations is over. So basically she's saying, hey, lie for me. You were the second intruder. I get out of prison. No one else has to do prison time. Maybe my ex-husband Michael has to go to prison. And thankfully that didn't happen. He didn't find anybody to lie for her. But um, when jailers searched his jail cell, they found this picture of her kids in his jail cell. Oh. Yeah. So this all came forward, the letter situation, because uh, a few years ago, her ex-husband, Michael, was trying to get sole custody of the kids so he could move them back to Australia, where he was from. But he was limited because he could, he, even though she was in prison for murder, she still had visitation rights. So he couldn't move them to Australia. He had to fight in court for years to get sole custody of his kids, even though their mom was in prison for murder. Yikes. Finally, he did get full sole custody. They moved to Australia. They're hopefully living a happy life. None of them have like a social media presence at all there. That's probably good. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Tracy maintains her innocence to this day. Her oldest son, Bert, and her mom stand behind her. They are convinced. Oh, she also got another guy to like be her fiance, who went on Dateline and was like, "She's innocent," blah, 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 and he looks like an idiot too. So she's obviously <laughs> guilty, and she murdered this poor awkward twenty year old boy for no reason.
1: Yeah, that's oh, I just don't understand how people get away with these things.
0: Right? I mean, she didn't, but it took ten years before she got arrested. Yeah. Yeah, like that sucks. that's super long. Yeah, it's shitty. But thankfully, she's in prison now, and she didn't frame her ex-husbands. Not thankfully she murdered an innocent person, but at least shes he got justice. And he's not going down in history as a murderer, a cold-blooded killer, you know? He just was a poor yeah, kid for sure. who got manipulated into a bad situation.
1: Which is super shitty, but the better alternative, I guess.
0: Yeah. So, that's Iowa. Iowa. Okay, next week we are in Minnesota. 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 Okay, so we will see you in Minnesota next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you want any more details about the stories I told today, we link to all of our sources in our show notes, so check them out. Um you can also follow us on social media. We're everywhere, it's Crime Country Pod. And Most importantly, give us a like, rating, or review on Apple Podcasts, and it would really help us out, and we would appreciate it. We love you guys. Bye! Bye!